Need one more reason why your Safeway store is just better? How about free Cuisinart Classic Cutlery or Elite Flatware? That's right. For every $10 you spend, earn a free stamp saver you can redeem for Cuisinart items. Once you've collected between 30 and 60 stamps, you could start shopping for a variety of Cuisinart Cutlery or Flatware available at the in-store display. Present your items and stamp saver at checkout. It's simple. Spend $10, get your free stamp saver. Start collecting. Safeway, it's just better. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Holistic Living, brought to you by East West Healing and Performance. And now, here are your hosts, Josh and Jeannie Rubin. Welcome, everyone, to our new episode of Holistic Living. Today is July 17th, 2013, and today we luckily are getting ready to peek back on our show. It's been a while. It's been a lot of uh, pestering and begging, I guess, to get him back on the show. We finally got him on. He's a busy guy. Today we're going to be talking about energy metabolism. It's going to be a 60-minute show. We're going to try to keep it um, as simple and um, efficient as possible. We will be taking callers. Um, we, Blog Talk is having some technical difficulties with um, my call right now. So um, I'm not showing a calling number. The typical calling number that we use is 347-426-3546. If you call that number, it says there's no show scheduled. So I'm having some technical difficulties because this is how we get right on the show. So just bear with me for the next minute or two. Hopefully he pops up, Jeannie pops up as well, um, so we can get them both on the show and get the show rolling. I guess I'll take care of some uh, um, announcements or just FYI type of information. Um, of course, if you're interested in learning more about us, of course you're you know calling in to learn about Ray P. First, of course, if you want to learn more about Ray's work, you can visit his website at raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. I'll give you a little background on him. For those of you who don't um, know who he is, we've interviewed him many times. And if you go to our website, uh, eastwesthealing.com, hold on one second, guys. I need to refresh this. I just got a message from Blog Talk. I apologize. Bear with me. Um, the call-in number, once again, it's actually different. It's not the number that I gave you. It's 760-454-1100. Once again, 760-454-1100. Um, we will be taking callers. You know, be patient. I want Ray to be answer, um, I want Ray to uh, be able to answer the questions. Um, I just sent Jeannie the number, so this should be going in soon. So if you want to learn more about Ray, go to his website, raypeat.com. He's got great articles. He sells his books, I think three or four or five books, on hormones, progesterone, and, you know, women and nutrition and things like that. He's got a quarterly newsletter that I highly recommend you signing up for. But Ray got his Ph.D. in biology from the University of Oregon with a specialization in physiology. He's taught in many schools from the University of Oregon to Montana State University and the National College of Naturopathic Medicine and many others. He also does private nutritional counseling. 
He started his work with progesterone-related hormones in 1968. Um, and since then, he's done more research and published more articles, course, which he shares on his website. And um, I'm going to ask Ray if he wants to introduce himself and add to that. Um, if you want to learn more about us, um, you can go to our website, eastwesthealing.com, like I was talking about. On our uh, website, uh, on the top, you'll find the fifth link. It says Ray Pete. We have a list of a lot of the shows that we've done, past shows from other people, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a list um, that's being shared on the Internet, and they're actually on this page. You can kind of listen to them all, download them all, and share them. We don't own them. Um, myself and my wife, we do nutritional counseling with clients all over the world, actually, through Skype. We have a cookbook, a metabolic blueprint cookbook that's on our website that's based on race philosophy, as well as an online educational program that is um, – PDFs, audios, and live calls bi-weekly. Um, it's an online edu- educational program called the Metabolic Blueprint. You can take a look at that on our website as well. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on YouTube. You can follow us on Facebook. All that fun and annoying social media stuff that's out there. So there they are. Let me get them actually on here because uh, I'm getting sick of hearing myself. Can you there? Yes. Hello. Oh, hey, yes, 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 we're both on. Okay. How's it going, Ray? Oh, very good. Good. Well, I did a small introduction uh, for yourself, um, just the basics of who you are, what you've done, what you taught. Um, is there anything you might want to add about yourself in regards to, you know, I don't know, maybe what you're working on or just anything about your history that you want to um, let people know about? Oh, right at the moment, I've been working on some of the similarities of the different organs. Uh, recent newsletters were on the, the heart and uh, the uh, typical uh, solid tumor as an organ, uh, having some of the properties of other organs in, during stress. And uh, currently, I'm working on both the uh, lens of the eye and the brain as uh, they express some of those same properties of the failing heart and uh, of tumor physiology. Uh, You see some of the same uh, processes showing up in such different places and uh, uh, trying to generalize things so that uh, uh, various treatments and diets and programs and such uh, don't seem arbitrary, but so you can see what's in common. Right. You want to tell people how they can get your quarterly newsletter? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, it's uh, for uh, in the United States, a uh, two-year subscription, uh, bi-monthly, 12 issues is uh, $28. And uh, outside of North America, it's $48. And they just email you through your website? Um, yeah, or post office box 5764, Eugene 97405. Great. And we highly recommend it, guys, for anyone wanting to learn and uh, really pierce through a lot of illusions that are out there when it comes to physiology. Um, we've been studying Ray's work and getting these newsletters for a long time, and, you know, it's it's really benefited us you know, personally as well as professionally and working with ourselves and clients, so we highly recommend it. 
So let's move on to the show. Today we're going to be talking about NAK metabolism. Kind of talk about a mishmash of topics. Um, and we'll take some callers if you know people have questions. Um, once again, the phone number is 760-454-1100. So I guess the first topic would be the body's alternative energy sources. Um, a lot of people talk about, you know, macronutrients and, you know, you have all these diets out there. Everyone says, you know, high protein is good or high fat is good or high carb is good. Um, and I think we all agree that, you know, all macronutrients are important. Of course, we all have different views on, you know, how much of one or the other we need. But I guess we can kind of rewind it a little bit and maybe you can talk about, you know, from your perspective, because you mentioned it on your site, and talking about the cells and talking about metabolism and why it's so important when we talk about energy. Um, well, one of the themes I've been interested in for a long time is uh, the function of carbon dioxide in cells. And uh, in uh, uh, some uh, observations, uh, people have seen that the, the most improbable organism uh, is unable to live without carbon dioxide, even though they can live uh, without oxygen. And ordinarily, we think of oxygen turning into carbon dioxide as a waste product, but it really seems to be even more essential for life than oxygen. And uh, carbon di- uh, uh, carbohydrates are a very good source of of carbon dioxide. Uh, They oxidize uh, and produce a lot of uh, carbon dioxide. And if uh, carbon dioxide is that essential to life, then obviously the best food to produce it is going to be carbohydrates. Um, And uh, in these recent newsletters, I've been uh, pointing out some of the things that are becoming fairly common knowledge now that a failing heart, for example, uh, well, if you just look at what happens when you exercise, uh, when you're sitting at rest, uh, the quiet muscle burns almost pure uh, uh, sugar and oxygen, pure glucose and oxygen. But as soon as it starts exercising, it shifts over to fat oxidation and at maximum exercise, it's burning mostly fat and very little oxygen, uh, uh, very little sugar. But it's uh, producing uh, quite a bit of, of uh, uh, lactic acid because it's uh, wasting sugar. Uh, it's burning the the fat pretty uh, thoroughly, but it's wasting the sugar and, and turning it over into lactic acid. The failing heart does the same thing. It's uh, exerting its maximum, and in doing that, it's uh, burning uh, fatty acids uh, primarily rather than sugar. And uh, this process in general of uh, substituting fat burning for sugar burning was called uh, by P.J. Randall a cycle, it isn't really a cycle, but now it's called the Randall cycle, which means that if you burn fatty acids, that stops your burning uh, glucose. 
uh, oxidizing glucose, and instead you'll uh, turning it into lactic acid. And uh, diabetes consists of living on fatty acids and uh, not being able to oxidize glucose, but still turning glucose into lactic acid so that lactic acidemia becomes a problem in diabetes. And obviously, to make lactic acid out of glucose, it has to get in, into the cells. So this whole thing of transporting glucose into the cell being where uh, the failure comes in heart failure or diabetes or whatever uh, just isn't the case because if, if you're making lactic acid, obviously the sugar is getting into the cell. Uh, something goes wrong in the uh, oxidation process and the cell begins uh, to favor the oxidation of fat rather than glucose. And that uh, doesn't produce as much carbon dioxide, and that seems to be a basic uh, problem for the cell that uh, leads it uh, down the path of uh, uh, reduced function and eventual non-survival. And a very similar thing happens in cancer cells. Uh, they begin turning uh, glucose, if not into lactic acid, then on in the fat, and then they oxidize the fat. Um, and in treating heart disease, uh, over the last five years or so, there's been quite a movement towards uh, thinking of ways to stop the oxidation of fatty acids, allowing the heart to uh, avoid the Randall cycle and get back to oxidizing glucose instead of turning it into lactic acid. So, just based on what you said, which is great information, I just get some clarifications, I guess, more for the listeners. When you talk about how, you know, the the cells or the muscles are using primarily fat, and, we, and you talked about foods, how carbohydrates are the most important because they increase the production of energy, which is CO2. Um, can you define, when you say carbohydrates, what you mean by that, and then clarify, you know, because uh, some people are going to hear that and maybe think, well, he's talking about eating a high-fat diet um, because our bodies are, are, you know, using fat for energy. Can you clarify on that a little bit? Um, well, uh, we can uh, turn protein into both sugar and fat equivalents. Uh, so uh, when when you're talking about energy, you have to consider that some of it might come from protein. Uh, but uh, in the case of oxidizing protein, uh, that's very wasteful. Besides being expensive, it, it produces a lot of waste material, uh, ammonia, for example. And it turns on machinery, which uh, resembles the stress reaction. Uh, when we're in stress, we break down protein and turn it into energy materials. Uh, but the um, mechanism of oxidizing fat somewhat gets into the uh, process of uh, creating stress, uh, especially the polyunsaturated fatty acids activate the same uh, stress uh, metabolite, stress-responsive enzymes uh, that burning uh, 
too much protein uh, will activate. Um, by carbohydrate, uh, people generally mean uh, both starches and sugars. Uh, it's simply the anything that's made up of that same proportion of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And uh, starches are just long chains of sugars. <clears throat> but in the case of most of the food starches, um, uh, they're composed of uh, pure glucose molecules. And, and so when you're uh, getting energy from starch, you're really burning pure glucose. And sucrose, the uh, standard table sugar, uh, that's also the, the main sugar of sweet fruits. Uh, and it consists of only half glucose and half fructose. And uh, fructose happens to be uh, able to metabolize without uh, relying on uh, the use of insulin. And uh, so it has been used uh, for feeding diabetics and uh, for avoiding some of the stresses produced by uh, the ups and downs of, of the insulin reactions. So getting the right amount of carbohydrates in relation to protein fat is one way to basically increase glucose oxidation. And if you're relying on fat, then you're inhibiting glucose oxidation is what really what you're saying in a simplistic sense. Um, yeah, and, and fructose okay. and glucose, um, assuming you're eating a, a sugar such as fruits. Right, right. Um, now, going with CO2 and, and talking about oxygen and things like that, you talk about antioxidants and what antioxidants are and how they allow oxygen to be used productively rather than destructively actually somewhat quoting you. So we could say CO2 is an antioxidant, right, and not so much all these supplements out there. We could say the carbohydrates that you recommend, like the tropical fruits and the root vegetables, are antioxidants. So are there more specific examples you could give in regards to antioxidants to help with the production of CO2 for the listeners? Um, well, uh, running the oxidative process through the mitochondria uh, very fast happens to um, be an anti-oxidative process in terms of avoiding toxic free radicals. And uh, so the faster you burn oxygen usefully, oxidizing sugars, uh, the less you have to worry about uh, taking care of the free radical toxic products uh, that uh, really develop when you slow down the respiratory process of burning fats, and especially polyunsaturated fats. Uh, vitamin E and vitamin C and uh, uric acid, which is produced in our body, is a major uh, antioxidant. Uh, but uh, the uh, marketing of the idea of antioxidants has uh, created uh, a big confusion in the area. Um, the uh, antioxidants in our body have to fit together with uric acid, which is naturally there, 
and the enzymes which naturally uh, break down free radicals. And uh, if you put things in that don't fit, an apparent antioxidant in, in a test tube can become a pro-oxidant in the body. Things have to uh, fit together so that uh, uh, vitamin A and vitamin E locked together and vitamin E and vitamin C locked together, uric acid and vitamin C locked together, and uh, the, the uh, uh, glucose and, and other sugars uh, have to uh, be streaming through the systems of enzymes uh, turning into uh, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide has to be flowing out of the cell properly. The whole uh, antioxidant system is really one piece, and if you try to stuff in any super antioxidants like they're selling uh, as health products, uh, you're likely to create more oxidation than uh, than you had without it. Right. Um, um, a recent publication saw that uh, cataracts are twice as common in men over the age of 65 who took big supplements of vitamin E and vitamin C, almost doubled their uh, rate of uh, uh, cataracts. So when you talk about, you know, I talked to clients a lot about this, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about like progesterone, when you talk about vitamin E, vitamin C, and you're talking about all the benefits of it, are you talking more from a food sense and a macronutrient sense, or are you talking more from a supplemental sense? Um, well, the um, vitamin E in particular uh, has a peculiar history that it started out in the 1930s uh, being called a fertility drug, a fertility nutrient. And uh, uh, the Schutz uh, family of doctors uh, studied it in treating women with uh, uh, clotting problems and fertility problems both. Uh, and uh, they saw that it, it prevented abnormal clotting uh, which is uh, a feature of excess estrogen. Uh, estrogen uh, has many uh, problem side effects when it's excessive and unopposed. And, and the shoots and others in the 1930s saw that vitamin E restored fertility and prevented heart disease by functioning as an anti-estrogen. <clears throat> and uh, around that same time, the polyunsaturated fats were being seen to have estrogen-like effects and to uh, cause uh, clotting circulatory problems. Uh, uh, animals that were fed on a high polyunsaturated fat diet uh, were sterile, and uh, the um, various forces such as the estrogen industry didn't want estrogen associated with sterility and heart disease and various pressures uh, turned vitamin E into an antioxidant rather than an anti-estrogenic material. Uh, so uh, by 1950, the whole history of 
of vitamin E had been turned into an antioxidant. And uh, so I, I don't see it as primarily an antioxidant. I see it as anti-inflammatory and uh, anti-estrogenic with this um, potential side effect of uh, pre- protecting against free radicals if it's in the right concentration and balance with other chemicals. So in a sense, you know, because estrogen creates that hypoxic environment at the cell level, correct? Where vitamin E does the opposite. You're saying it's almost like an antioxidant. It allows oxygen to be used more efficiently at the cell level. So in um, a sense, yeah. because of that, it's anti-estrogen. Yeah, both estrogen and uh, anything that creates inflammation uh, wastes right. oxygen and uh, yeah. tends to lead to lactic acid um, production. And vitamin E, by stopping the inflammation and estrogen effects, is is uh, also making more oxygen available and reducing the right. lactic acid problem. Now, going with estrogen, since some of the next topics and questions are kind of correlated with that, um, and we're talking about ourselves, and we talked about free fatty acids, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I know it's a huge topic and how... It, you know, it can cause a sluggish liver. It can it can be recirculated through the body and inhibit T4 to T3 conversion, cause a hypoxic environment at the cell level, leads to edema, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that in regards to, you know, free fatty acid production, cell metabolism, and the thyroid, you know, in regards to energy production, a little bit more in depth? Um, yeah, as, uh, thyroid is the hormone that activates our whole uh, oxidative system and leads to the production of carbon dioxide when it's working properly. And estrogen, besides working at the cell level to waste oxygen, happens to uh, block the enzymes that secrete uh, thyroid hormone. And the the fatty acids uh, that are saturated happen to oxidize with uh, fair safety. Uh, The polyunsaturated uh, fatty acids are the ones that are more likely to break down and produce free radicals. But cells distinguish between these two types of fatty acids and uh, prefer to oxidize the saturated fats. That means that anytime you eat a little bit of excess uh, unsaturated fat, it primarily goes into storage because the cells prefer not to oxidize it but to store it instead. But estrogen uh, prefers those um, oxygen-wasting, free-radical-producing fats. It uh, preferentially causes them to be liberated from storage. So under the influence of estrogen, uh, all of the free fatty acids increase Uh, women have on average higher uh, level of free fatty acids circulating, but preferentially estrogen brings the polyunsaturated fats out of storage, especially the very long-chain polyunsaturates. And these are the ones that most interfere with other levels of thyroid function, not just the secretion, which estrogen directly does, but with the transport and... uh, metabolism of the thyroid hormone. Uh, So at many levels, 
estrogen and the polyunsaturated fats are working together to um, inhibit the function of uh, the thyroid hormone and the oxidative system. And does that also have to do with, um, you know, estrogen wasting glucose, estrogen stimulating the adrenal contracts, like putting yourself into that kind of sympathetic state, that hypoglycemic state, which, you know, as well causes the, you know, breakdown of proteins, increases free fatty acids? I mean, it, does it have to do a lot with it, its functional wasting glucose? Estrogen directly stimulates the secretion of insulin, and uh, that uh, tends to lower blood sugar and and create fat storage if you've eaten uh, more than enough. Uh, But it also directly uh, stimulates the adrenal cortex, increasing aldosterone and and cortisol, and uh, uh, that... uh, uh, causes uh, the whole system to go into the emergency uh, reaction process. Uh, The the cortisol uh, tends to bring blood sugar up where the insulin tends to lower it. And uh, so the uh, uh, more estrogen is increased and unopposed by uh, protective things such as progesterone, DHEA, and pregnenolone, uh, and thyroid, uh, then the more uh, system uh, stresses and tendency to failure there are. Right, right. Now, kind of moving forward with um, estrogen, since we're on that topic and we're talking about today endometriosis as well as body temperature, Um in one of your articles, you talk about the work of, uh, De- I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, Desjardins, D-E-S-J-A-R-D-I-N-S. Okay. And you talk about how estrogen's interactions with unsaturated fats causing damage in the brain cells, you know, increasing free radicals. And this causes the pituitary to remain chronically active, which basically produces a state of constant estrus. Now, in regards to endometriosis, is is that a major factor? Like, what are your thoughts on, you know, I guess what are your your thoughts on endometriosis? Is it it the unsaturated fats? Is it not enough carbohydrates? Is it... Uh, Desjardins and his group uh, were interested in um, many of the... uh, uh, side effects of estrogen on the brain, uh, uh, not just the uh, effects on the pituitary, but the endorphins, uh, the effects of uh, iron accumulation, and the fatty acids and their interactions. And, and uh, the liver is, because of the uh, estrogen thyroid effects and the uh, constant pushing up of the growth hormone in particular, from the pituitary, the liver from an early age is feminized. Um, And this shows up in uh, uh, studies of liver transplants from uh, uh, female donors to male donors and male donors to female donors and various combinations. They found that uh, apparently because of this process of, of stress hormones and the growth hormone, feminizing uh, women's livers, they make uh, 
poor candidates relative to uh, uh, the livers of men for transplant, and the women uh, have more trouble uh, receiving uh, a liver transplant uh, because of estrogen's uh, interaction with the, the thyroid and liver uh, causing uh, stress for both of the organs. She's saying basically endometriosis is more of a the inability to detoxify this excess estrogen versus a low progesterone. Um, yeah, it involves the liver and the pituitary, but uh, estrogen is is very central to the the actual uh, lesion or abnormal tissue of endometriosis. Um, the the uh, simply by reducing uh, estrogen exposure, you can alleviate the uh, the symptoms of endometriosis. The cells uh, begin producing estrogen. They contain the or express the enzyme aromatase, which manufactures right. estrogen, which they used to think existed only in the ovary. Then it turned out uh, to exist in fat cells, breast cells, skin cells, bone and muscle, everywhere that's under stress will begin to produce estrogen molecules. And when that happens in the uh, endometrial tissue, uh, it, it should uh, be exposed to estrogen for only about 12 hours each month, and then progesterone should surge up to 50 or 100 times higher concentration and uh, cause the cells to give up their production of estrogen and to release what they had. Uh, but instead of that, the uh, aromatase keeps churning out estrogen, and the um, estrogen excites, the, the tissue turns on the cyclooxygenase enzyme, which turns polyunsaturated fatty acids into prostaglandins, creating right. inflammation that causes the pain contractions and uh, all of the symptoms uh, and the, the um, inflammation from the prostaglandin in turns in turn creates more aromatase and so it gets a vicious cycle going and the simplest uh, most physiological way to stop it is to eat a, a diet uh, with adequate uh, protein and sugar and uh, trace minerals and, and vitamins, but uh, to make sure your thyroid is functioning. I've seen uh, people uh, who had been constantly for months or years suffering painful endometriosis who in two or three days completely stopped the symptoms permanently just with quick-acting thyroid and a good diet. Uh, oh. And uh, aspirin or other blockers of prostaglandin production uh, all by themselves can uh, greatly reduce the uh, formation of estrogen and break the cycle. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Can you talk about how uh, polyunsaturated fats actually activate aromatase enzymes? So we can say that unsaturated fats are estrogenic because they waste vitamin E as well. So for people with endometriosis, of course, Eliminating unsaturated fats um, will help reduce estrogen production. 
Um, yep, they're, but, they're central to endometriosis. Right. We're talking about aromatase enzyme. You've talked about before, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, how you, you actually brought it up, how aspirin therapy actually inhibits aromatase enzyme and actually can upregulate energy production. Can you elaborate a little bit more on aspirin therapy? Um, yeah, in in cancers, uh, bowel or, or breast or whatever, uh, the cells that are stressed uh, begin to produce estrogen, and uh, the estrogen in the in the uh, other tissues, no matter what it is, as long as there's polyunsaturated fat available, the estrogen is going to activate the cyclooxygenase enzyme that makes prostaglandins, which keep the uh, aromatase active, producing more estrogen. So uh, even if you aren't eating it currently, the uh, polyunsaturated fat that was incorporated into your tissues is going to break down under stress, flow into the bloodstream, and uh, feed the production of estrogen, whether whatever tissue it's in, uh, but especially in the uh, irritated, uh, inflamed, cancerous tissue. Okay. And, uh, so, uh, sugar is one of the things that can uh, reduce the flow out of your tissues of the polyunsaturated fats into your bloodstream. Uh, niacin amide is another uh, thing that simply uh, limits the release of these fatty acids from the tissues. Uh, so both sugar and niacin amide uh, back up the function of, of uh, aspirin. So people are suffering with endometriosis would be like, you know, getting the right amount of carbs, regulating your thyroid, using niacin amide, and possibly aspirin therapy. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, going a little bit more with estrogen, since we're on that topic, um, and we're talking about body temperature and pulse, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, what does estrogen's role play in this, you know, since we're on the topic of endometriosis as well? Because you talk about how estrogen increases heat loss, you know, and how it can stimulate um, nitric oxide, you know, and lead to vasodilation and all those things. Um, how does that, you know, maybe you can correlate that a little bit with body temperature and pulse and, and endometriosis? Um, yeah, the um, even though estrogen is turning on the stress hormones, and the stress hormones uh, tend to protect the body temperature. Uh, at a certain point of estrogen dominance, uh, even the adrenaline, which tends to tighten up blood vessels in the skin and uh, make your hands and feet cold uh, to keep the uh, brain and heart temperature up where they function, uh, uh, and the uh, cortisol, which should keep... Uh, turning uh, your tissues over uh, producing heat, even those uh, aren't enough to keep your uh, body warm, and so your temperature falls after a certain uh, total exposure to unopposed estrogen. And uh, the reason uh, progesterone and thyroid, uh, progesterone all by itself without uh, driving the oxidative process can drastically and quickly increase your temperature uh, while at the same time uh, lowering the stress hormones that normally 
uh, keep your temperature up in an emergency. The progesterone is uh, uh, blocking the, the uh, estrogen's effect, simply letting you return to a more uh, normal set point in your temperature. And in doing that, it uh, stops these mechanisms that cause flushing, such as nitric oxide, uh, that causes vasodilation and turning red and feeling hot, uh, which right. causes the, the falling temperature. There's actually a caller. Uh, do you mind taking your question? Taking it from a oh, caller? Sure. Okay. Okay. Caller, Hello, from Mary, uh, four one, four, go ahead, 417, you're on the air. Yes, this is David, and, and thank you for having this show. Um, I hope this question makes sense here. I'm going to try to formulate this the best I can. Uh, I remember reading about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and uh, Lewis and Clark were, you know, offered, and their their uh, team were offered salmon by the Northwestern Indians, and they just did not want to eat that. They had been, you know, eating elk and deer and different ruminants, and obviously just had were almost repulsed by the uh, taste of the salmon. My question is, is just about uh, human physiology in general and about the polyunsaturated fats and about saturated fats. You know, number one, how are these tribes, and I know we don't know a whole lot about their health in general, but how is a tribe like these northwestern Indian tribes uh, surviving and possibly even thriving off of, you know, living off of salmon as maybe their main protein, even though that may not be exactly true? Um, and is it possible that they have learned how to to balance certain plants and sugars and these polyunsaturated fats and maybe even, um, you know, because of they're maybe not storing too many of these polyunsaturated fats and maybe because they're not living in too stressful of an environment like we are in this modern age, that somehow they're able to thrive off of those types of foods? Um yeah, the uh, Northwest Indians uh, had uh, a lot of varied foods. Uh, I don't know how much salmon they really ate year-round, uh, but I imagine they, they dried quite a bit of it. But uh, uh, various uh, mixtures of bear fat and uh, berries and fruits were uh, uh, very well uh able to um, survive uh, travel and storage and such. And so uh, those were, I think, usual staples among them. Uh, is, that the, the, uh, is that called uh, parmigan? or uh, Something like that. I forget. Yeah, I, I think I've heard it. And that was, was that fish or was that like a, a more of a, a ruminant saturated fat? Uh, all of what I've seen was um, uh, bear fat, but... Yeah, yeah, okay. So that wouldn't actually be even a ruminant fat, would it? Okay. Huh. And, but, but that bears, would probably be a pretty saturated fat, though, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, because bears like to eat a lot of fruit and grass, and uh, they aren't primarily carnivores. When they've looked at their stomach contents, it looked like they were fruit eaters. Well, and, you know, that's the other. Uh, that was actually in my list here kind of, and I hope this is interesting to ask this question. I, I don't know. I think it ties this, things together hopefully in an interesting way. But, you know, grizzly bear is another animal that, 
you know, gorges themselves on salmon for a short period of time, and that's probably not very long, but maybe a few months, and then that may even be closer to the fall. I don't know how that spawning works, but I know they go into hibernation, and I know I've heard, in fact, I think I've heard that on this show way back, uh, about talking about how they actually increase their serotonin to go into hibernation, and that was also tying into the fact that you've got, like, you know, deer here, like where I live in Missouri, and they're ruminants, and they're eating acorns, you know, all through the, the the fall. And I don't know, you know, they're probably eating grasses and different things, and, of course, they can convert those things to saturated fat, I know, but... Um, then you've got squirrels and other rodent-type creatures that are eating all these different nuts and things. And I just wonder how much that's been studied as far as how that affects their lives and their metabolism and everything. Uh, the squirrels have been studied pretty well, and they found that when they kept them from eating the uh, acorn-type highly unsaturated things in the fall, they didn't hibernate. But it wow. Was the, the poofa that... Yeah, the PUFA increased the serotonin and put them to sleep. But it wasn't even good sleep. Typically, they'll wake up a few times uh, during the winter to uh, sleep normally. But huh. that, the serotonin, it's a type of torpor that they, they like to wake up from and have a sleep. So, you know, and I, I, this may be getting way too deep here, but I keep thinking about all these different things like that, especially after reading your books about, you know, it appears that all these different life forms, and obviously including humans, we've all, you know, we've been placed around the globe in different types of environments and ecosystems, and we appear to try to make the best of whatever situation we're in with what we have. Is it possible animals that are hibernating kind of stumble into this polyunsaturated fat thing and then realize they they kind of get into the state that they go, well, shoot, I'm just going to go to sleep here for the next few months. It's a lot easier than trying to struggle through it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that's a gradual uh, adaptation to a, a seasonal stress that people uh, people get depressed in the winter, but they aren't able to uh, spend four or five months sleeping it off. Yeah, and so and that's the other thing. You know, Dave, Dave, I'm sorry, but I, I have to cut you off because I got some other questions from. Okay, Colin I'm and, sorry. I I yeah. I've been talking about all this way too long, but anyway. Okay, <laughs> thank we you. Are, we all good. Thanks for calling. I know. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah, I got a, a question from a caller. They actually just emailed me since we're talking about, you know, the cells and estrogen and all that. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, you hear some people say, well, I have hot flashes, you know, from Europe's standpoint, we know the mechanism behind them. We kind of just talked about it and what estrogen does. You know, how come some women will get estrogen therapy and it actually eliminates their hot flashes? Um, I have a little bit about that in my uh last uh, newsletter on the hot flashes it's on my yeah. website but uh, uh, I, I think it, uh, it just uh, creates a, a stress that uh, keeps them from experiencing the ups and downs so it's almost like maybe they have this increased heat loss they're you know have such extreme vasodilation in taking that excess estrogen kind of just pushes them over the edge and almost like shuts things down? 
Uh, yeah, I think it, it it slows the metabolism enough that they aren't uh, going in and out of the state. Okay, okay. Another question, um, kind of maybe on topic, off topic, I guess we could say, um, trying to locate it. But it's talking about, oh, here it is. Um, I think we've talked about it before on the show, but I'll bring it up again. You know, you have mothers out there and their children have, their babies will have colic or eczema or something like that. So, of course, the doctor will say, you know, you have food intolerance as a mother. You know, you can't have beer, you can't have eggs, you can't have berries or melons or whatever it may be because of a lab, you know. And that actually benefits the child. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how how can someone, what's going on there, and how can someone work out of that to get to the point where they can eat these beneficial foods? Um, in animal experiments, uh, some people saw that uh, the mildest allergen would produce a deadly allergic reaction if they lowered the blood sugar. And uh, uh, the mother's uh, system can pass uh, allergens through the milk so that even the baby can experience uh, the interaction of ups and downs, blood sugars and uh, allergens. But uh, with these animal studies, they found that if they increased the blood sugar artificially, just uh, putting a, a tube in with some glucose, the deadliest allergens that had killed normal animals uh, would just cause a little sniffling when they were getting extra glucose uh, pumped into the bloodstream. Uh, but lowering the blood sugar from whatever cause would cause a mild allergen to kill the animal in shock from a allergic reaction, releasing histamine and serotonin. Um, and uh, that I've seen many times in people who uh, used to rush to the hospital for uh, a shot or glucose or something, or who carried a, an adrenaline pen with them uh, for an allergic exposure or a bee bite or something. Uh, instead, they would keep a, a big bottle of Coke in the fridge and uh, drink the Coke quickly as soon as they had the exposure and stop going to the hospital. So, if I hear you correctly, kind of what you're saying is that postpartum, it's more of uh, a, a hypoglycemic reaction. It's a it's a the inability to regulate your blood glucose, which is creating these allergens which you're passing along. So if you're able to um, regulate your blood sugar, and you talk about in that article, um, hot flashes energy and aging. How in an experiment, hot flashes were found to be increased by lowering blood sugar and decreased by moderately increasing blood sugar. And progesterone has a huge part in this in stabilizing blood sugar. So do you think that it has a role postpartum having that low progesterone and being hypoglycemic and being estrogen dominant. And if you, if a, if someone was able to regulate their blood sugar and increase thyroid production, it it wouldn't so much have to do with the foods. That doing um, that alone would heal heal them and the baby. Uh, yeah, the the hormones. Um, even when a woman has had a a very happy pregnancy, uh, sometimes because the uh, uh, the pregnancy itself is. It, 
driving her hormones and keeping things in balance. As soon as she has the baby, there's a letdown in which she uh, discovers her own hypothyroid progesterone deficient state, which becomes uh, very uh, excessively estrogen dominated. And uh, uh, that causes the postpartum uh, depression uh, syndrome along with uh, a whole range of other uh, possible uh, consequences such as rheumatoid arthritis and MS and uh, allergies, seizures, and so on. Okay. Hope that answers your or the you know the listener's question. Um, do you mind taking another question from a caller? Sure, fine. Caller from nine one three, you're on the air. Do you have a question? Nine one three or nine three one? Sorry, nine three one. Okay, okay. Just wanted to make sure. Hi, uh, this is Carmen Hunter, and I've been in communication with um, with Ray by email, and he's been more than helpful. Um, just real briefly, I've been um, on the Ray Pete plan with orange juice and food for about 23 days or so, and um, within three days of starting the food plan, I was able to actually stop taking my thyroid medicine, and um, my temperatures actually went up and have stayed up, and my pulse is actually going up as well. My question here is, does it take the pulse a little bit longer to follow with temperatures? And if so, what does that mean? Um, the temperatures have been 98.1 to 99.2 consistently without a break and rising after food. So I'm wondering, um, is the pulse going to follow or what might be going on there? Uh, how fast is the pulse? The pulse goes uh, anywhere in the morning when I wake up, it's about 65, and then um, through the day, it goes up to 85. Uh, it's probably okay. Uh, I think 85 is a very good daytime pulse rate. Okay, is that consistent? Because it's not every day. It just, it you know, it it varies. Um, yeah, you just uh, should stay alert to uh, possible fluctuations in your stress hormones and thyroid and such. But those numbers sound very good. Wonderful. Okay, the other question I had um, briefly is I had. Uh, I went to the doctor yesterday and had all of my labs pulled, uh, the lactic acid and all of the thyroid labs, everything all over again. And um, I, I'm wondering, after being off of medication, what I can expect with my uh, labs, or does it really even matter what they say as long as I feel good and my temperatures and pulse stay the same? Um, well, you want to um, keep your eye on TSH if you have the opportunity. Uh, okay. You don't. You don't want it to uh, go too high because it uh, will start creating uh, uh, the symptoms of hypothyroidism. It creates inflammation and uh, changes your blood viscosity and heart rhythm and so on. So it's safest to keep your TSH down, and you can do that uh, usually just by eating a, a good balanced diet, lots of, of fruit. Okay, how low, I mean, how high is too high to keep an eye on? The highest my TSH ever was was 3.0, and um, the joint pain and everything else settled in then. And by the way, since eating the way that, you know, you recommend or what your sites recommend, my joint pain has completely disappeared. 
Um, yeah, I would uh, say that three is always too high. Uh, three American, is too high, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, below one is is where I feel more comfortable with it. And in a big population, uh, the freedom from thyroid cancer is best when the TSH is below 0 0.4. 0 0.4, okay, great. Um, one last thing, and I, and, that, and I promise that's it. Um, how do you actually get rid of the stored uh, PUFAs? Do, you, do we want to limit the release or detox, or how do we get rid of them, the easiest way to do that besides avoiding them? Uh, that really is a problem. It's uh, uh, worse than uh, storing DDT, I think, because we do have the ability, the liver can treat them like a poison and excrete okay. them so they pass out through the urine without having to be oxidized. But uh, if the liver isn't just very well supported, the polyunsaturated fats can block those enzymes in the liver uh, the way estrogen does. So you have to um, make sure that your liver isn't uh, under stress. Uh, don't go too long without eating or uh, getting rest and so on. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for your time. And um, everything has, has literally changed my life. I've been to 17 doctors over 13 years and have never felt better than I feel today in the last um, uh, two and a half weeks. So I appreciate you very much, and thank you for your time on email and, and for your interviews. Mm, very good. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in, Carmen. All right. Bye-bye. Just kind of one more big question, Ray, and then we'll um, let you go because, uh, you know, I promise I don't take up an hour of your time. Um, talking about body temperature pulse, you know, uh, just for the listeners, you know, because these people are talking about it, um, and this correlates with the question just someone sent in for you. Um, you know, what does body temperature pulse tell us about energy metabolism? Do you find that to be more accurate than a thyroid panel, and, you know, how long do you recommend taking tempopulse? I know people hyper-focus on this because I think Broder Barnes recommended 10 minutes under your armpit. Do you recommend axillary? Do you recommend, you know, orally, et cetera? Um, as long as you do it in the same way, in the same place, it doesn't matter right. very much. Uh, uh, okay. The uh, mouth is quicker than the armpit usually, and I found that some people had fat armpits, and it, it would take about two hours to get the temperature up through that <laughs> thick layer of fat. And right. uh, then in hot, humid weather, one summer we had 90-degree uh, weather, and all of the hypothyroid people had normal temperatures, so I checked their pulse. These people coming in with 98.6 temperatures a lot of them had 45 per minute pulse rates. And I realized you have to look at more than one indicator when you have an environment that would keep a, a rock up at a normal temperature. Um, and so there are other indicators. Um, the, the pulse rate and temperature are the quickest and easiest. Uh, ear, eardrum temperature is very quick to take if you have a good instrument. A lot of them aren't consistent, but um, the Achilles reflex relaxation test is a, a very quick and a very definite indicator of 
of thyroid function as it affects the nerves and muscles. Um, right. But a lot, uh, some people on the Internet have demonstrated something that's useless for the thyroid. Uh, you want the toe to hang freely and relaxed when you kneel in a chair so that if you thump it and get a twitch so your toes go away from your body, the foot should relax uh, with complete instantaneous relaxation so that it, it looks just like a piece of jelly flopping there. After the outward twitch, the relaxation should be utterly relaxed and floppy if your thyroid is good. Right. And what we're looking at with temperature and pulse is how our cells are using glucose, oxygen, and thyroids. We're really getting a big picture of our thyroid. Um, and wouldn't you agree, though, that, I don't know, I just find that people think that temperature and pulse are going to change overnight when they do this. And don't you agree that it just shows you that you're going in the right direction? It just takes much more consistency of what you're doing to get that consistent regulation. Um, yeah, you can, if you uh, add to the good diet a supplement of pregnenolone and thyroid, for example, you can get there pretty quickly. But to uh, get there just with diet, it depends on how how much PUFA you have stored in your tissues, for example. Right. A, a big right. fat person has a, a lot of work to uh, get rid of some of the toxic stuff. A very skinny person uh, can uh, sometimes just... Uh, apparently, like this this woman mentioned, it just took a little while for the diet to uh, bring her metabolism up. I've seen people in, in as little as a week uh, pop out of a, a chronic state of stress and start metabolizing. Right. Great. Well, you know, I have kind of run through all my questions for the hour that I promised you we'd talk. Um we had some callers, which uh, I appreciate, and definitely appreciate you taking the time to answer those questions. Um, definitely take, appreciate the time for you to come out today and, um, you know, spend the time here and, and educate us all. Is there anything you want to add in regards to what we talked about for the listeners before we go? Nope. All right. Well, once again, Ray, we really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure I'm speaking for everyone. We really learn a ton from your um, just from your research and information, and it's, it's. I'm sure you know this, but it's helping a lot of people. So I think we all thank you. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> well, have a great week and a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Ray. So for all the listeners, of course, this show is recorded on Blog Talk Radio. It's recorded on our Blog Talk Radio show page. Um, you can listen to it after. You can download it later if you want to. It's actually um, uploaded to iTunes as well as an MP3. And if, you, if you're on iTunes, you know, on the, um, on the uh, podcast and you search Josh Rubin or Jeannie Rubin or Holistic Living, uh, our podcast will come up. If you want to find our Blog Talk Radio show page, just go to eastwestfilling.com in the upper right-hand corner. You'll see the little microphone for the Blog Talk Radio Show, and you can find this show as well as past shows. We appreciate everyone taking the time out tonight to listen to the show as well as for people to listen to the show later on. Hopefully, I will be able to get Ray back on the show sooner than later. 
If I do, you guys will know, pay attention to our Facebook page, East West Healing and Performance, or the Metabolic Blueprint, which is the closed group, as well as our Twitter page. Wishing you all a great evening and a great weekend. Need one more reason why your Safeway store is just better? How about free Cuisinart Classic Cutlery or Elite Flatware? That's right. For every $10 you spend, earn a free stamp saver you can redeem for Cuisinart items. Once you've collected between 30 and 60 stamps, you could start shopping for a variety of Cuisinart Cutlery or Flatware available at the in-store display. Present your items and stamp saver at checkout. It's simple. Spend $10, get your free stamp saver. Start collecting. Safeway, it's just better.